But we often experience frustration in our lives. That's an obvious point that all of us can relate to. You ever wonder why are things the way that they are? I mean, think about it. We have so much, we have so much frustration all the time. So much frustration. Like just a few examples. Take, for example, issues with extended family. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that every one of us here, at some point, has had problems with cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, nephews, nieces, even parents-in-law, extended family difficulties. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that everyone can relate to that on some level. Right, but we think, okay, well, that's extended family. In our household, it's going to be different. All right, so... We think, okay, like our children, we're not going to have the same problems as we have with our extended family, with our children. Everything's going to be all right with them. We're going to be, we're going to have a real good relationship. We're going to relate rightly to one another and they to us. And then we find that we have problems with our children. Even this morning on the way in to the worship service this morning, I spoke harshly to my children. I had to apologize to them. I said, please forgive me. I got angry with you. And I shouldn't have spoken to you the way that I did. And then on the way home, I started trying to correct my son about something in a gentle voice. And he covers his ears and starts singing. <laughs> so it goes both ways. Right? We have, we have problems relating to our kids and our kids have problems relating to us. But we think, okay, well, that's our kids. They're just children. They're immature. It's not going to be that way with our spouse, our wife, or our husband. We're not going to have problems with them because, after all, we chose them. Right? I mean, we, we chose maybe, we might have chosen to try to have kids, but we didn't choose that specific kid. But we chose our spouse knowing full well who they are, and we're not going to have the same problems. And especially if you're married to a Christian spouse, you think, well, they're going to they're gonna conduct themselves in a godly way, and I'm going to conduct myself in a godly way, and we're going to live happily ever after. But then we have problems with our spouse. Right? But then we have problems with our spouse. So then we think, okay, well, it's because we're, we're too close to one another. Like, I mean, you can't, you have no space to just have space to yourself. There's no degree of separation. So it won't be this way with our friends. Because, I mean, our friends, we can just see them for a couple hours at a time and we can be on our best behavior. And then we can go home and take a break from our friends when we need to. And so it'll be better with our friends. And then we find we have conflicts and problems and difficulties with our friends. So we think, ah, yes. But in the church, in the family of God, the brothers and sisters, the brethren, how blessed it is when the brethren dwell in unity. It's like oil running down onto the beard of Aaron. We're not going to have problems in the church, surely. Surely no problems among Christian brothers and sisters. And then we have problems with Christian brothers and sisters. Ah, but God... God is perfect. God never does anything wrong. God will never sin against me. And so we'll never have any problems in our relationship with God. And then we find that we have problems even in our relationship with God. Problems that we bring to the table. We have problems then even with the inanimate world. Even with just trying to keep our house clean. We have problems. Because... Dust settles on things when we don't regularly 
uh, sweep or when we don't regularly dust a shelf or whatever. We have problems with a toilet leaking or a washing machine breaking down. We have problems uh, in the garden because the weeds come up alongside of the fruit that we're trying to grow. We have problems everywhere. Everywhere. Frustration everywhere in our lives. <clears throat> throughout all of our relationships with other people, throughout even our relationship with God, even our relationship to the inanimate world, we have problems. And so it can be very frustrating. And I'm being a little bit lighthearted, obviously joking around a little bit about this, but at times it can actually really feel really, really heavy. At times it can really feel like, man, this is a hard life. This is, this is really rough. Why is it so hard? What's wrong here? What is the problem? Where did all, the, all of these problems come from? Where does all of this stem from? Well, we see in this passage before us tonight, Genesis chapter 3, verses 7, all the way through to the end of the chapter, is that sin has made a mess of things. I'm going to deal with consequences and the curse together. Though they can be distinguished from one another, they're intermingled here in this passage. Consequences would be like that which naturally happens because of sin. But the curse is actually God's direct active involvement in making things hard and making things difficult and making things painful for Adam and Eve. And so they could be distinguished in that way. Um, but I'm going to treat them together because they're intermingled in this passage. So what we see, one of the ways that we see this sin has made a mess of things is in creating conflict with God. Immediately after Adam and Eve eat, in verse 6, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now there's a lot in here about nakedness. And it can, be, it can throw us off a little bit. Um, we can kind of wonder what does this mean. But just, just try to keep it real simple. Before the fall they had nothing to hide. But after the fall they didn't want God to see them. You understand what I'm saying? That there's something, something about the uh, nakedness is connected to the purity and the legitimacy of, of who they are. They, they could be seen, as it were, before the fall. But after the fall, they could not be seen. Some parts of who they were were uh, inappropriate. And I'm not talking about necessarily body parts, but I'm talking about part of their being, right? But it, became, but it became appropriate to cover up even body parts after the fall. Um, but what we see is that they didn't have any problem with God seeing them before the fall, but they had a problem with God seeing them after the fall. And that's actually right. That's actually right. The, the biggest human problem is not a self-esteem problem. Like as if we would just be more confident in who we are. And if we would just be more willing to just be yourself, be ourselves and just let people 
see who we are. Let God see who we are. You know, and if anyone doesn't love you for just who you are, you know, whatever, disregard their opinion, right? That's not, that's not the problem here. The issue, the issue here is that actually they were unfit to be seen by God, as it were, when they sinned. And so, in some sense, though it was wrong, though it was wrong that they went and hid instead of running to God to confess their sin and to ask for pardon, the fact that they recognized that there was something wrong in them that God should not have to see in them was actually a correct perception. And so that's what we could call a consequence of the sin. That there was a guilt attached to it which produced a shame and that guilt and that shame was right. We want in our modern day uh, therapeutic mindset, we want anytime somebody feels guilty about something or feels ashamed about something, we want to we comfort them and tell them they shouldn't feel guilty or that they shouldn't feel ashamed. But sometimes we really just should feel guilty and sometimes we really just should feel ashamed about things. And so that is a natural consequence of their sin. They became unfit to be seen by God, as it were. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil, we read elsewhere in the Scripture. Haven't you ever felt that natural consequence of sin in your own life? Where you do something wrong, whether it's a thought, whether it's a word, whether it's an action, and you feel that guilt, and you feel that shame settle down upon your soul. And just like Adam and Eve did, sometimes we even hide from God. Right? We, think, we think that maybe God looks up at us from the pages of the Bible the way that computer hackers might spy on us through our webcams. And so if we, if we put tape over the webcam of our computer, no one can spy on us. And if we don't open our Bible, God can't see us. Right? But that's not the way it is. But we, we deceive ourselves. Right? Adam and Eve couldn't really truly hide from God behind a tree in the garden. They couldn't just run in the bushes and God would not know where they are. And so it is with us. If we, just because we don't pray, just because we don't read the Bible, doesn't mean God has lost track of us. Right? And so we can't really hide from God, but how often do we try to hide from God? We try to make it so that we do not encounter God, so that He does not see us. That's a natural consequence of sin. Now what you see is that another natural consequence of sin is conflict with one another. You notice in this passage, God comes and speaks to the man. And He says, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 11, And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. What this is, is this is a product of Adam's corruption, right? A, a, a man who was not corrupt would own responsibility uh, for the choices that he had made. It's an it's a impossibility to say a man who is not corrupt would own responsibility for his sin. So I had to word that kind of carefully. But a man who was not corrupt would not pass the buck or blame shift away from himself, right? A man, a man who is not corrupt would take responsibility for his own actions, for his own behavior. 
but it's a product of our corruption that makes us not own responsibility for our sin. Because we are corrupt, we do not own responsibility. So, why are you not reading your Bible or praying? Well, because someone else did this to me. Right? Why, why are you indulging in this sin? Why are you indulging in that sin? Well, you see, it's like this. It's a little more complicated than just this. Da, 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 da. And we make all these reasons and all these excuses. We shift the blame instead of taking responsibility. Right? And often, we shift the blame not always only to our circumstances, but to other people. I do this because my wife did that. Or I do this because my husband did that. Right? Or I, I don't do this because my wife doesn't do that. Or I don't do this because my husband doesn't do that. Or my friend did this to me, so I did this to him or whatever, right? And this is the way that we often do things. It's a product of our corrupt nature. We become uh, selfish and narcissistic. We think about our own interests. We don't care. We don't care, for example, like what did Adam not care if Eve would get cursed? He just didn't want to be? What's going through his mind here? At this situation, he says, the woman that you gave to me. Right? So we become selfish, narcissistic, as if all that matters is our own selves, our own comfort, our own situation, our own uh, preservation, all of these things. And so we don't want to own responsibility for our own sin. What would people think of me if I just own it and just say, I sin because I'm a, a wicked man, I did something wrong. I'm a sinner who needs Jesus. And this was completely wrong what I did, period. Well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to bear the full brunt, right? We become selfish and narcissistic. But we also... see that not only does this conflict uh, with one another happen when somebody sins, our sin causes conflict with one another. In verse 16, to the woman God says, among other things, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a little footnote, if you have an ESV, there's a little footnote there at the bottom that says, uh, beside the word for, it says, or against. If you flip over to chapter 4, we see in chapter 4 and verse 7 that sin's desire is for Cain. Sin's desire is for Cain. And that's the same word. So it seems like with the close usage, we want, to, we want to interpret words as they're used in a particular context because words can have a broad lexical range, a broad range of meaning. We want to interpret words in the way that they're used in the nearest context. And so when it says, when he says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, I don't think that what God is saying to Eve is that you're going to desire your husband, um, but he's not going to desire you or something like that. I think... What is in view here is that Eve is going to desire to rule over, to master her husband. And God is making the statement that she's going to feel uh, frustration and a futility in her marriage because of her corruption. Because 
now she is going to seek to invert, to subvert the created order of things where Adam rules over her and she's going to try to rule over him. And so there's sin not only makes us, brings conflict into our relationships after we sin in the sense that we want to shift the blame and avoid responsibility, but sin, the corruption of our natures actually causes us to sin in our relationships, which creates conflict. So sin doesn't, sin doesn't just make conflict harder to resolve when conflict happens. Sin also creates conflict. And so we see that sin has made a mess of things in terms of our relationship with God, and sin has made a mess of things in terms of our relationship with each other. Isn't this, isn't this the way that it still is, right? We find that our sin makes us want to invert or subvert the natural order of things. Our sin, he says to Adam, God says to Adam, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. God is not just cursing farmers. He's saying that man's work is going to be full of toil and difficulty and we're going to get to that in more detail a little bit later but even as it comes to a man in terms of his relationship with his wife a man in terms of his relationship with his family that just the way that Eve's corruption is now going to cause conflict in their marriage so is Adam's corruption in the sense that a man is going to resist the work that feels futile a man is going to seek to shirk the work that feels futile that if his relationship with his wife is full of thorns and thistles, he's going to be tempted to not bother, right? Or to avoid his, using his strength, or he's going to seek to abuse his strength and pull up the fruit with the weeds, so to speak, and just um, over... To, to work in his marriage in an inappropriate way. And so what you see is, again... Sin has made a mess of not only our relationship with God, but our relationships with one another. And this is just the marriage, the marriage relationship is explicitly in view here as he talks to Adam about how his relationships are going to go and how he talks to Eve about how her relationships are going to go. That's explicitly in view here in Genesis chapter 3, even in terms of the way that they blame shift and all this with one another after they fall. But this would have bearing on all of our relationships, that there's going to be difficulty in all of our relationships because of the conflict uh, that sin has introduced, in, because of the corruption, part of me, that sin has introduced into our lives. And so this has broader bearing than simply the marriage relationship. So as I speak so, so much to marriage, I'm speaking of that as an example or as a uh, working from the specific to the general principle, which is that the corruption of sin uh, in our hearts and in our lives is going to introduce conflict into all of our relationships. And so not just conflict with God, but conflict with one another. And then there's conflict with creation itself. And this is what I was just talking about. That there's going to be thorns and thistles to Adam's work. There's going to be work frustration. Now, again, it's not just farmers who are cursed. right? So it's not like Man, everybody's job is just pure bliss, except farmers, right? Because if you work in an office building, you don't have to worry about thorns and thistles, right? This is, God is 
giving a specific, uh, laying a specific curse upon Adam that's going to have more general bearing on all of Adam's descendants. Frustration and futility is woven into the nature of work. And this is because there are, there are things that you can do to mitigate the effects of entropy. Entropy is basically the principle that if something is uncultivated, it falls apart or becomes chaotic. So if you don't cultivate your garden, weeds overgrow it. If nobody comes and uses this building, nobody comes and maintains this building, it's going to start sagging and, and uh, eventually it's going to collapse, so on and so forth. That's the principle of entropy. Then there's the principle of decay, right? That over time, even cliffs at the edge of the sea, which seem so strong and seem so sturdy, will erode, will decay. That... Um, even our, our bodies decay. Uh, everything decays eventually, given enough time. Everything decays. And so at the bottom of everything, all we can really do is miti- mitigate the effects of entropy, mitigate the effects of decay. We can't actually fix everything on earth. You can't just clean, do a Christmas cleaning to end all Christmas cleanings and just clean your house so thoroughly that you'll never have to clean it again the next Christmas. You just can't do that. You can't just eat the meal to, eat all, to, to end all meals. Just have that delicious, nutritious food that's just going to satisfy you indefinitely. You can't just build uh, the building one time and just build it so sturdily that you'll never have to fix it up again. Everything in due time is going to f- need some cultivation. It's going to need some attention. And so because of that principle which was introduced by the fall, Everything is falling apart and all we can do is slow it down or mitigate its effects or add and supplement new materials in place of old materials to maintain some semblance of the original thing. That's part of what is in in view here in this section. And so we have conflict with uh, even the inanimate order of things. Conflict in our work, conflict with our work that we do it and then it needs to be done again. And then we do it again, and then it needs to be done again. And no matter how hard we work, we can't just stop working because we finished. Right? There's always then more to be done, or a new situation comes up, or a new project happens, or whatever. It's not the human race can never just do enough work, and then just we'll all just put our feet up. That just is not the way it works. And so we, we need to be always paying attention to things or entropy and decay is the order of the day. But then there's also the, not only the curse upon the ground which, yield, which manifests itself in terms of work, Adam's work, but there's also the curse upon the ground. In verse 17, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. There's also the effect of the curse on the ground, like things like earthquakes, which lead to tsunamis, uh, wildfires, cancer. There's things like this that is not necessarily directly related to work. It's not necessarily directly connected to Adam's work, but it's connected to the curse that is upon the ground, that things are not the way they should be, that things are falling apart. 
This is because of sin. This is God's judgment upon the earth itself and the physical order of things. The connection between atoms and molecules is affected by sin. God has cursed the, even the inanimate world because of sin. And so sin has made a mess of things in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of our relationship with others, in terms of our relationship even to the inanimate world. And sin has brought us into a fiercer conflict with Satan. Now Satan had obviously fallen before this incident. We know from later scriptures, and I'm not going to take up too much time to talk about it tonight, but we know from later scriptures that the serpent was an instrument of Satan in this passage doesn't mean that snakes are demons. That would be too simplistic. It also doesn't mean that um, uh, Satan is literally a snake. Some of these things are simplistic. But many times throughout the rest of Scripture, Satan is referred to as a serpent. And um, there's, there's allusions back to this event which help us understand that Satan was involved here. Um, there seems to... This is just incidentally because I know it's a point of curiosity. So this is kind of off our main point just for a minute here. Because we're moving on and we'll be in chapter 4 next week. But it seems that in chapter 3 and verse 1 says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It seems that there was something about the snake that, was, that made the snake a particularly suitable instrument for Satan to use. And so that doesn't, that's not a moral quality. I don't know exactly what that means in the sense of um, it seems that there was uh, in verse 14 it seems that the snake probably wasn't on his belly beforehand perhaps the snake had a certain kind of impressiveness about it or something that would lend itself to having more credibility uh, perhaps it was the fact that it could it could be up in a tree and would be would be well poised to speak to Eve I don't know I don't know what it was about the serpent that made the serpent a more desirable tool in the hands of Satan to tempt Eve. But it does seem from chapter 3 and verse 1 that there was something actually intrinsically about the serpent that made the serpent a desirable tool for Satan to use. And so we see um, that in verse 14, there's actually a curse upon the actual snake as well as a curse upon uh, Satan. But it's, it's commingled together that he he curses the snake and says that it's going to go on its belly which implies that it hadn't gone on its belly before but again this is not because the snake bears moral responsibility the snake was not a moral creature it's just because uh it's a symbolic uh cursing of the snake and it just showing that the severity of sin that even the instrument that satan uses gets cursed shows the severity of of sin, But then when he speaks to enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, this isn't just describing that ladies hate snakes and snakes hate ladies. <laughs> this is describing, this, this is describing the, it may, and it, honestly, it may speak to that incidentally, but what, this is, but what this is primarily speaking about is the offspring of Satan uh, and the offspring of Eve. And that's a figurative figurative thing that those who are um, the offspring of Satan he's not talking about like demon children but it's talking about those who follow Satan and are after his likeness the way that Jesus tells the Pharisees you are of your father the devil 
in that kind of sense. That there's going to be enmity between the children of God and the children of Satan. The children of the promise and the children of Satan. So that's, that's what's going on there. So that's all, that's all incidental. Now back to our main point. Sin has brought us into a fiercer conflict with Satan than we would have had otherwise. Satan had obviously fallen by this point, again, because he tempts Eve. So obviously he had to have been fallen by this point in order to tempt Eve. But just because Satan fell, it's not a necessary logical consequence that therefore Adam and Eve must fall. And so we don't know exactly what the details would look like to live in a world where mankind is not fallen, but some of the angels are fallen. But what we would expect is that there would be more, there would be certainly more preservation and that Satan would have less of a leash, less freedom to be at work in this present world. Um, that there would be less destructive effects of Satan and his demons in this world than there presently are. Right? And so the, our fall into sin has brought us into a fiercer conflict with Satan than we would have had otherwise. An analogy to help us think about this might be like reading about a war in the newspaper versus seeing a war right outside our window. Uh, We were driving up Gun Hill the other day and we saw a military truck come down. And I said to Mel, now if St. Vincent and the the Grenadines invade, we're going to be well prepared to to ward off the invasion. It'd be one thing to read about a war, but to, to look out our windows and to see an actual war happening here in Barbados would actually be a whole other thing. But on a more serious note, obviously I was joking when I said that, on a more serious note, Pastor Lee Powell, uh, Chris's dad, um, was in London during uh, the Luftwaffe bombings of the German Air Force uh, during World War II. And so again, it'd be, it'd be a difference between reading about World War II from here in Barbados, in the newspaper, and understanding that there is a world war going on in Europe versus being in Pastor Lee's house and hearing the Luftwaffe flying in and dropping bombs all over London. Uh, the house right beside his was destroyed during the war. Uh, he, was, he was narrowly um, uh, rescued from a uh, um, bombing. He could tell you this story sometime if you guys ever have a chance to visit Toronto. Um, but he was a child in school and um, the Nazis started flying in and he was captivated just by the planes and stuff and he went out and stood there and they were, they were coming right in, right over top and one of the teachers ran out and like pulled him in and um, uh, sure enough, they had dropped a bomb like shortly thereafter, like right where he would have he been uh, killed by it. And so, again, just the reality is seeing it out your window is different than reading about it in a newspaper. And so I don't know exactly what it would have looked like to be in a world where mankind was not fallen, but some of the angels were. But perhaps it would have been a little bit more like reading about it in a newspaper. That we would understand that there are fallen beings, that we would have... Uh, some cause for concern and some cause for precaution. But when we sinned, it brought everything right to our front door. Right? That it was, it's became like looking out our window and seeing the fighting right there. It became like the need to take cover in a bomb shelter. The fight came right home to us. 
we read now in the scripture that our enemy is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. There are those who see the devil as it were behind every bush. They always want to, the devil did this, the devil did that, something bad happened, oh, it was the devil, right? I do something bad, well, it wasn't me, it was the devil made me do it. Right? Incidentally, by the way, the devil doesn't actually make you do anything. Even, even in the case of those who are demon-possessed, the devil doesn't make them do anything. There's always, there's always moral culpability in the scriptures uh, attached to those even who are demon-possessed. David Pallison, uh, who's a counselor at Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF, has written an excellent book called Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare, where he's, he's addressing um, an unbiblical view of spiritual warfare um, and he talks about the nature of spiritual warfare and makes uh, a very compelling exegetical case that uh, even in the case of demonic possession it certainly makes it harder for people to do the right thing and certainly we should have compassion for those who are possessed and oppressed by demons but at the same time the call um, uh, the moral culpability for their actions remains with them, and we still ought to proclaim the gospel to them, repent and believe the gospel, and we ought to expect that they have the moral responsibility uh, to do so. And so it, that's just that's incidental. But again, back to the main point: the devil isn't behind every bush, right? The devil, not everything bad that happens in the world is a direct result of the devil. But but mark my words. The devil is behind some bushes. Right? And we have a we have an equally unbiblical worldview if we say that the devil is not behind any bush. Nothing is the devil. The devil never does anything. Right? We we have an equally unbiblical worldview as those who say that the devil did this and did that and does everything. We have an equally unbiblical worldview as them if we overreact and go to the other end of the pendulum and say that Satan is not active. Satan and his demons are not active in this world. And so uh, sin has brought us into a fiercer conflict with Satan than we would have had otherwise. And so sin has made a mess of things. But the thrust of the biblical storyline is not that sin has so irretrievably corrupted the world that we need to abandon ship, so to speak, and go somewhere else. The thrust of the biblical storyline is that sin is a temporary intrusion into an otherwise good world and that sin shall one day be eradicated from this world. That sin shall one day be removed from this world. That all things shall be made new. The first Adam brought sin in and the second Adam Christ Jesus shall get sin out. After considering what sin has done, let's now consider what Christ will do. And this can be summarized in the well-known Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Revelation chapter 21. Such a glorious passage. You've heard me read it in your hearing before and I'm going to read it again tonight and I'm going to read it many, many more times in the years and decades ahead because it is 
such a beautiful passage and it's worthy of our regular remembrance and our regular meditation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In terms of our battle with God and with one another, Christ shall address that, that aspect of sin. God will resolve the conflict that we have with God Himself and with one another. Christ will bring forgiveness, has brought forgiveness for the things that drive us apart. The things that drive us from God, the things that put distance, as the prophet says, the things that have made a separation between us and God, Christ came to bring forgiveness for those things. The things that drive a rift between us and other people, whether they be in our extended family or our immediate family or our church family, whether they be with friends or coworkers, the sins that we commit as Christians, which keep us from other people. Christ has come to bring forgiveness for these things also. But Christ has not simply come to bring forgiveness for these things and to leave us doing the same things over and over. Christ has come to bring cleansing. Christ has come to make us new in terms of the way that we relate to one another. I can guarantee you one thing. In heaven, I will never have to apologize for speaking harshly to my children or anyone else. Because in heaven, I'm not going to be sinning anymore. And in heaven, you're not going to be sinning anymore. Christ Jesus has not only come to nail our sins to the cross, the record of our sins, such that we would be judicially forgiven. And yet here we are in heaven just bickering. Well, I I only did this because you did that. You know, here we are like tens of thousands of years from now arguing with one another. Will you hurry up and finish that already? You know, why I told you to do that a long time ago. Why are you done? You know, we... We're not going to be it's stuck in these same patterns of sin for years and years and millennia and millennia to come. Christ has come not only to forgive us, but to set us free from sin, to make us new, that we would live new lives, that we would relate to one another in new ways. He's come to make us new. There is the principle of newness that's obvious when we think about Christ uh, making us new. Behold, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 
we've been born again, there's radical change. For those of us who have undergone the experience of the new birth, we can really say, I'm new. I really am new. The way that, uh, if you've ever read Charles Dickens' tale, The Christmas Carol, Scrooge wakes up on Christmas Day. He, he says, I, I feel like a new man. He's had this radical transformation. And something really profound uh, has happened. We who have been made new recognize that we really have been made new. That we're not who we once were. I was just reminiscing with Mel this past week of just how, just how new God has made me. Not only, not only since... I was an unbeliever, but even since I was first converted, Mel's known me since I was first converted, and God has just changed me a lot since that time. And it's just, there really is newness that happens when we come to Christ, that God really does make us new. He makes us definitively new when He first brings us to faith. He changes our very nature. He regenerates us. He gives us a new birth. But He then goes on to make us progressively new. And those of us who have been made Christians can testify to this. Yes, I am new. But what is equally obvious is that there's continuity. That if people that you knew back in secondary school ran into you in the supermarket and you started talking to them, it's me, remember me? No, I don't know. Who are you? Right? It's It's not that Christ has made you so new that anyone who knew you a few years ago, they don't know you anymore. They can't recognize you. There's obviously continuity. And if I saw some of my old school friends, even after all these years, they would recognize me. If they came down to Barbados for a vacation, I saw them in the supermarket, I'd say, oh, hey, it's me. You remember me, John Ritterskart? They would say, yeah, I remember you. So we're we're new, but there's also continuity. Right? That it's not not a matter of... uh, Literally, there's nothing the same about me as there was before. There's, a, there's an obvious and a radical newness, but there's, ob- there's also an obvious and profound continuity in the way that God makes us new. So just bear that in mind. But Christ comes to bring forgiveness for the things that put distance in our relationship between us and God. And Christ came to also to bring cleansing or newness in terms of the things that put a rift between us and other people. As 1 John 1.9 says, those who do not seek to hide their sin, but freely confess it to God, receive both forgiveness and cleansing. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if if there ever was a motivation to confess our sins on a regular basis to God, that would be it. Day by day, Not even only day by day, but even hour by hour. Oh God, forgive me, I sin in this way again. Lord, would you forgive me and would you cleanse me? Would you make me new in this way? Lord, I don't want to be stuck in this. The Word says that if we confess our sins, you're faithful not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us. Oh God, cleanse me of this sin. So this is part of Jesus' work of uncursing the world giving forgiveness and cleansing for the things that put distance in our relationship with God and the things that put distance in our relationship with one another. This is part of Jesus uncursing 
of the world. This is part of Jesus making His blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is one sphere where the curse is found in which Christ makes His blessings flow. However, this is not the totality of the Gospel message. Christ did not come only to justify and to sanctify sinners. He came also to uncurse the rest of creation. Even in terms of our conflict with the inanimate world, Christ Jesus came to uncurse that sphere as well. As God said to Adam in the garden, cursed is the ground because of you. So Jesus has come uh, and it's as if God could say, uncursed to Jesus, uncursed is the ground because of you. Christ will make not only us new, but Christ will make even this inanimate world new. That there will be uh, a new heavens and a new earth. And this is why I belabored the point about both newness and continuity a moment ago. There will be uh, uncursing of the inanimate creation which parallels the uncursing of us. That there really will be a profound newness. That the new heavens and the new earth we're going to be like, oh wow, it's new. It's really new. This is, not, this is not the old world that we used to live in. Back when we used to meet on Pastor Road and Pastor John would preach to us, this is new. This is not like that world. But there's also going to be a profound continuity. In the same way that someone would recognize me if they knew me from years back and saw me in a public place and would say, that's John. There's going to be a continuity that this world is going to be renewed, but in such a way that we're going to be like, yeah, this is that world, free from sin, uncursed because of the Lord Jesus. There, uh, the word regeneration is used in the New Testament not only to refer to individual people, but also to refer uh, to the eternal state of things. It's just called the regeneration. In the regeneration, such and such will happen. And isn't that a wonderful way to think about that new world? In the regeneration. When not only I have been regenerated and made new, but when even this world has been regenerated and made new. The biblical storyline is not, Behold, I scrap plan A and proceed with plan B. Nor, Behold, I annihilate fallen creation and make an entirely different creation. Rather, it is, Behold, I make all things new. And as it is with us, so shall it be with creation. As it is with our individual salvation, newness and continuity, so it is even with the inanimate world. Fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Christ does not merely come to make us as individuals new and make His blessings flow in that sphere where the curse is found. Christ comes even to make the new hev- the, this earth and this heavens new and make His blessings flow in that sphere where the curse is found. And lastly, Christ does not do away with our enmity towards Satan nor his enmity toward us. And that might seem at first glance uh, 
to not fit with the trajectory of where I'm going here in terms of making his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. In the sense that there really are those who will be damned for their sin. Christ's blessings will not flow there. There really is a hell and Christ's blessings uh, will not flow there. Satan and his demons shall always, always be fallen and shall always, always be at enmity with God and shall always, always be at enmity with God's people. But what we see, what we see is that when the Scriptures say that Christ has come to bring salvation for all men, it doesn't mean all without exception, but all without distinction. And so there really is salvation. There really is salvation for human beings. There really is salvation even for the inanimate world. There really is in every sphere of this world there really is the hope and the promise of renewal what will happen is not that God will reconcile Satan to himself or that God will reconcile demons, the other demons to himself or that God will reconcile each and every person who has ever lived unto himself and everybody without exception will live in heaven forever what will happen in the end is that God shall gather out of His kingdom Satan and all who follow Him. Christians will never be at peace with those who are at peace with Satan. However, we will have peace from that conflict. Matthew 13, 41 and 42 says, The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This world and all who live in this world into eternity will be freed from the curse. But those who have not trusted in Christ will never be freed uh, from the effects of sin and the punishment that they deserve for their sin. They will be gathered out of God's kingdom, which incidentally will eventually be this world, the new heavens and the new earth. They will be gathered out. And so we will live with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, in His kingdom in which righteousness dwells. But Satan, all the other demons, and all who have refused to turn to Christ in repentance and faith will be gathered out of the new heavens and the new earth. If someone has never trusted in Christ for salvation, this cursed world is as good as it will ever get for them. Think about that. If someone has never trusted in Christ for salvation, this cursed world is as good as it will ever get for them. Hereafter, is that fiery furnace that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. As John MacArthur famously said about Joel Osteen's book title, Your Best Life Now, 
the only way this could be your best life now is if you're going to hell. Think about that. Why would we want sin so much that we would be prepared to stubbornly persist in our sin through this sin-cursed world just to get a few decades of cheap thrills and then eventually to end up in hell for our sin? That's not worth it. So the conflict with Satan and his demons and those who follow Satan, those who are outside of Christ Jesus, that conflict would exist, will exist into eternity, but we won't have to deal with that conflict anymore. Christ will gather them out of his kingdom. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be any unbelievers. There's not going to be Satan or any of the demons. And so we're going to be free uh, from that aspect of living in this sin-cursed world. And so in that sense, even in that sphere, even in terms of the sphere of our relationship to demons and our relationship to unbelievers who hate us and mock us and ridicule us, even in that sphere, Christ comes to make His blessings flow. Not to them, but to us. By freeing us uh, from their oppression, by freeing us from the experience of that conflict, by gathering them out of the new heavens and the new earth and throwing them, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, into the fiery furnace. That's a sobering thought, but that's one of the blessings that Christ has come to make flow to those who are in Christ Jesus. That we won't be dealing with this enmity with Satan and with this enmity with unbelievers forever. So Jesus has come to uncurse us, uncurse the world. In every sphere, Jesus has come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Are you among those who will be uncursed in eternity with Christ? Think about that. Are you among those who will be uncursed in an uncursed heavens and earth with Christ for eternity? And what a glorious future awaits you. This present cursed existence is not all there is. We could write an autobiography of our lives or a theology of... uh, the way things will unfold from here to hereafter and call it your worst life now. (laughs) Right? And if this is your worst life now and it only gets better, doesn't that give you some courage, some hope to persevere against your sin, against Satan, to persevere in reconciled relationships to God and to your fellow man and to persevere in the expectation that one day Christ shall return and His blessings shall flow far as the curse is found. There's a lot of good that we enjoy here. It is hard. As I mentioned at the beginning, it is frustrating. Sometimes it can feel overwhelming to live in this sin-cursed world. But if we look, if we look closely, there's actually a lot of good things that we enjoy. 
There's a lot of common grace. The scripture says that God sends His Son to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. We can all be thankful we don't live in Toronto where it's probably minus 10 or minus 20. We can be thankful for some of the common graces that we see in our lives. We can be thankful also as we open up the scriptures for the measure of uh, the grace that we've tasted already. That we who are trusting in Christ Jesus have been reconciled to God. And that our sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross. We can be thankful for these things. We can be glad that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Though our communion with Christ isn't all that it will be in eternity, it's something now. And and what a blessedness it is to be united to Christ by faith and to walk with Him through the world. To have promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. That He will be with us even in the valley of the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. This is our life now. And if this is our worst life now, and we are looking forward to an uncursed eternity with Christ in an uncursed new heavens and new earth, that should give us some real perseverance, some real hope. So sin has made a mess of things. But Christ has come to uncurse the world.